This is Emily. This is Olivia, Ariel, Megan, um, Matt, and Ryan, and that was Tafari who just left. Have you had a chance to read those uh, those pieces by Sarah? Yeah, yeah, they're great. How's your weekend? How's Blake? Um, I brought in a copy of Songs of Innocence and of Experience with the plates so you can see what it looks like. Uh, so that's worth passing around. Tafara, this is Emily. Emily oh, Tafara. Oh, Okay, so what'd you guys think of Songs of Innocence? I like it. <laughs> Good, why? Um, I don't know, I mean, it's interesting, especially in contrast to uh, Songs of Experience. But it was, I don't know, just enjoyed it. Okay. Um, did you think the poems were deep? I mean, you'd read the nurse's song. That we had read the nurse's song with some I, detail. I think that they were like, Yeah. So remember that they were originally published on their own. So in 1789, when Blake was 32, he published a book called Songs of Innocence, and that's what you guys read for today. Then five years later, he um, published a book called Songs of Innocence and of Experience. Um, so Songs of Experience are not were never a standalone. Um, but Songs of Innocence were, or was, the name of that, <laughs> the, the book with that name was a standalone. Um, so if you think of it as a standalone, um, how innocent are the Songs of Innocence? We, talk, we already talked about the title, that is that if you um, call something Songs of Innocence, then you're contrasting it with... Um, um, its um, other possibility. Um, very few of the figures in Songs of Innocence would have an idea that they were innocent um, because they wouldn't have an idea that there was something else um, besides being innocent that they might be. Or maybe it's just worth asking, what does innocence mean? What does it mean to you? What do you think it means to Blake? Pure. Pure? Yeah. Harmless. Harmless? Um, why harmless? Why do you say? Um, um, <clears throat> because it, I imagine that there's a link between innocence and innocuous. Mm-hmm. So etymologically, what are they? Okay, no, no, no. <laughs> what do they mean etymologically? <laughs> like harmless or devoid of danger. Yeah. So. Um, the, the knock in innocent or an innocuous or innoxious means, um, means uh, poisonous or, or harmful. So innocuous, innocent, innocent. 
means not harmful, not causing harm. Um, so those who are innocent of a crime are those who have not caused the harm, um, have not caused the crime. Hello. Hi. Sorry. I keep getting yeah. lost trying to find this class. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's hard. Um, this is Emily. This is Nicole. Hi. Um, so um, innocent would therefore mean didn't cause harm or hasn't caused harm. Um, what does it mean in Blake? What does it mean to be an innocent in Blake? What does it mean to be a sweet summer child in um, George R. R. Martin? So they don't know about harm or negative things, right? It's, it's, it's an ignorance, sort of. Yeah, so there is, and, and lots of people like the fact that um, innocence and ignorance sound enough like each other that you can pair them. Um, that is that um, it's uh, not, um, when you go to a court of law and you plead not guilty, um, some people call that pleading innocent. Um, it's not quite the same thing. Um, but um, the idea would be if a jury finds you innocent, the opposite of that is finding you guilty. And both are possibilities. Um, that is that they're, they're on the same level um, in the same way that, that um, black and white are on the same level, or red and green, or something like that. They're, they're um, um, two possibilities within the same category. Um, but here, and maybe that's what we feel about the book called The Songs of Innocence and of Experience, that the two possibilities there are innocence and experience. But when you just have the Songs of Innocence, um, it's as though the possibility of experience isn't quite there. Um, that the... Um, it's there in the title, that is, whoever's titling it knows that this is only a partial um, description of um, human, what it means to be human, of what humans have um, felt or, or thought or seen or um, been part of. Um, because if you can give it the title, you know there's the other possibility in this case, or later Blake is going to call it experience, um, I wonder what he would have called it. Can you think of another word that he might have used in um, 1789? One of the things that's really interesting about it is that he um, uh, comes up with experience as the antonym for innocence five years later. Um, that's an interesting antonym. It's not songs of guilt. That's not the antonym. Um, and in a way, he may not have had an antonym in mind, but can you come up with one besides experience that would be appropriate to the Songs of Innocence? Knowledge. Songs of Knowledge. Okay, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, any others? Reflection. Songs of Reflection. Okay, good. Um, what would be the least reflective song, or what would be a very unreflective song in the Songs of Innocence? What would be the opposite of that? What about something like Infant Joy? I just had to say Infant Joy. <laughs> yes. Why? Um, Good. I have to see Why? <laughs> I have oh, you didn't bring your book? Sorry. Oh, my God. Here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, where is it again? In the Songs of Innocence. I think it's, it's towards the end. Um, yeah, we can give you the plate number. Um... Do you guys have the Norton? Do uh, I have the Norton? 
Um, so. Sorry. Twenty-five. Played twenty-five. Okay. So I have no name. That's because he doesn't know what his name is. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and then it just doesn't mean anything. <laughs> um, what do you mean? Like, um. I don't know. I don't. I don't know what it means. It what? means something. Well, no, no. Don't try to make it. Maybe, maybe meaning would be the opposite of innocence. So maybe you don't need to make it mean anything. Yeah. Just it's a little dialogue. If you um, one thing worth noticing is um, that here, pass around the plate again. This is this is the one. So it's. Um, what you're seeing is um, a giant flower, which is open. The petals are open. And here's an angel talking to the baby, right? Okay. So um, how much, one thing you have to think about when you're reading Blake is how much the, um, to use the illustrations as a, um, in, um, an interpretive tool for understanding Blake. That is... Um, you can, in a lot of his work, in the so-called illuminated work, um, you can see that work as um, a single thing, which is the illustration plus poem, or poem plus illustration. Um, And therefore, each would, in some way or another, uh, reinforce the other or affect how you read the other would bring out what the other means in the same way that two lines of poetry or two lines that rhyme with each other affect each other. You could say that the poem and the illustration rhyme with each other in some sense. Um, or you can say that the illustration comes after. Very few people will think the illustration comes first in Blake. Um, there's, there's some exceptions to this rule where he'll reuse an illustration and have different lines. That doesn't happen in the Songs of Innocence and of Experience, but it happens in some of the prophetic books. Um, but it's almost always the case that um, you wouldn't think of the illustration coming first and then Blake writing a poem explaining the illustration. Um, it's almost always the case that, that um, you either think of them as as simultaneous, or maybe even think of the um, um, po- um, the illustration coming after the poem. Um, if you know, um, um, what is it? Not um, the Runaway Bunny. Oh yeah. Um, or Goodnight Moon. Yeah. Um, um, in in you get, do you guys all know Goodnight Moon? It's a totally amazing book. Um, So it took um, Ruth Brown um, a day to write Goodnight Moon. She just sat down and wrote it. And then it took Clement Hurd a year to do the illustrations for it. Um, And um, the illustrations, I mean, you know, it's a great book, but the illustrations are just amazing. Um, And he was a student of Fernand Leger's, so he was actually... um, um, painting within a, a tradition of great modernist art. Um, 
So um, here you can also see the illustrations coming after the text. Um, if that's so, one question then to ask yourself is, do they reinforce each other? Do they form a single work? Do they reinforce each other? Um, are they, and we talked a little bit about this when we were looking at Holy Thursday, um, are they sometimes in explicit contradiction with each other? That is, are the illustrations in some of the songs of experience you might think the illustrations are actually showing innocence because who is it who likes pictures? Children. Um, but the words are showing the truth um, behind that innocence. Um, that's one way um, to understand it. Um, so the relation of illustration to text is something to think about. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I was also thinking about that, like the fact that when you are young, you don't necessarily need to read the text of like books right. to understand like the story. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like children write in their own way. I feel like drawing because mm -hmm. it's like a representation of their thoughts and yeah. their like emotions. So, yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and they tell their own stories, too, if they see a picture. Okay, so here you have Infant Joy. I have no name. I am but two days old. Oh, I'm sorry. One reason I wanted you to look at the plate specifically is that if you have the, um, the Norton, if you have this book, which I ordered, um, the, they have the unfortunate habit of putting in quotation marks where there ain't no quotation marks um, to allude to a scene in North by Northwest. Um, they're, they're trying to clarify for you who's speaking and when it's Blake speaking and when it's a character speaking. So if you look at Infant Joy in the Norton, it's, quote, I have no name, I am but two days old, unquote. Um, quote, what shall I call thee, unquote. Quote, I happy am, joy is my name, unquote. Um, changed it for the new edition. Oh, did they? Oh, that's good. Yeah, so someone must have really complained. Um, okay, so forget what I just said. Um, quotation marks only came into general usage towards the end of the 18th century. And um, so it used to be the habit of most editors to add quotation marks. Like when you, if you're, when you were reading Milton, anything you saw in quotation marks was not in quotation marks when Milton wrote it. Um, they just weren't used for quotation. It's a, um, a convention that um, people realized it would be helpful towards the end of the 18th century. Um, so um, I have no name, I'm but two days old. So that is obviously an infant speaking. Um, but is it an infant speaking? Or who's saying it for the infant? Do you, know, do you guys know literally since we talked about what innocence means um, and what innocent means? Um, do you know literally what infant means? It's, a neg it's another negative, right? Like innocent or innocuous or indolent or um, insular. Um. Yes, so an infant is a child that cannot speak. Um, and so the definition of infant is, is um, pre-speech. Um, so... Here's an infant who is supposed to be speaking at two days old. So who's actually speaking? 
remember we talked about this in Holy Thursday a little bit, who's speaking in infant joy if it's not the infant? I have no name, I'm but two days old. The angel in the painting? Or the mom? Or the mother, and maybe they're the same thing. The yeah. mother's feeling like an angel. Yeah, it's um, the way adults are always doing doing that sort of thing for um, little children and also for animals. You know, who's a good dog? I'm a good dog. That kind of thing. Um, so you can imagine if you were acting this out, I have no name, I am but two days old. Just the adult speaking it for the child. That wouldn't be quite right because that would be over speaking it, but it would be the adult sort of um, knowing how the child is feeling. I have no name, I'm but two days old. What shall I call thee? It's the same speaker, but a different I, right? Um, I happy am, joy is my name. Again, if you think of the adult saying it for the child, that makes a lot sense. And then, sweet joy befall thee. Um, that is, if your name is joy, let joy befall you. Pretty joy, sweet joy, but two days old, sweet joy, I call thee. Thou dost smile, I sing the while, sweet joy befall thee. Um, so clearly, if you get rid of the quotation marks, you can see that sweet joy I call thee is, um, wouldn't make sense as a moment of um, naming if the child had already said joy is my name. I don't want to make this too, I mean, this is less complicated than the explanation of it is. But the basic idea is if the child says joy is my name, like Max, if you say Max is my name, and I say, well, I'm going to call you Max, that would be odd, right? Um, so So it can't be that that's literally what goes on in the dialogue between them. That a two-month-old says my name, a two-day-old says, um, Joy is my name, and then the adult says, um, I will call you Joy in that case. Um, sweet Joy, I call thee. Um, so it has to be that these are, that this is the same sort of thing said a few different ways, that the mother or the angel is feeling um, the way that this child can only be thought of as joy. And the child simply being in the world is saying, I am joy. The child isn't actually saying those words. It's being is a kind of saying, I am joy. Does that make sense to people? Um, And so um, that is the innocence of the child, but it is innocence because it's the adult who is projecting Um, or imagining or remembering or loving what is innocent about that child. Um, Let's look at... um, um, Yeah, let's look at a cradle song. Um... I want to add for the uh, infant joy. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something like really ominous, um, and like I have no name when you provide.
provide the footnote that says like they don't name children until they're three days old. Yes. Because yes. yeah. you don't know if they're going to die or not. Right. That um, they're christened at, at three days. Shakespeare was christened April 26th, which is why he's thought to have been born April 23rd. Um, and, and so, but, but so the only time you're going to be in this state of joy is this time before oh, nice. you're named. Um, nice. That's really fleeting. Nice. Um, yeah. And so, when the speaker says, sweet joy befall thee, um, that just has such an ominous note, because joy does not befall people. Mm -hmm. Tragedy befalls people. Mm -hmm. Events befall on people. Um, like, I think Spinoza says joy is the power to act. Nice. It, it's not something that befalls. So there's just, you know that this is a really transient state. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, and transient is a really good word for it. Um, and um, it's, it's um, what the innocent are innocent of is the transience of the experience of innocence. Um, they don't know how quickly it's going. They don't know that laughter on the hills turns to whispering in the dales um, and how quickly laughter on the hills turns to whispering in the dales. Um, I just have a question about yeah. uh, infantry and etymology again. Yeah, is there a connection between infant and infantry? Um, yeah, but it's, um, I mean, it's not that complex, but it's basically the least powerful um, figures in the army. Um, okay, a cradle song. Does someone want to read that? Let's see, I think I haven't asked Megan yet. Have you read yet? I have not. I didn't think so. Sweet dreams form a shade for my lovely infant's head. Sweet dreams of pleasant streams be happy, silent, beauty beams. Sweet sleep with soft down, weave thy brows and infant crown. Sweet sleep, angel mind, hover o'er my happy child. Sweet smiles in the night, hover over my delight. Sweet smiles, mother's smiles, all the little one men beguiles. Sweet moans, double-like sighs, chase not slumber from thy eyes. Sweet moans, sweeter smiles, all the double-like moans beguiles. Uh, sleep, sleep, happy child, all creation is left and smiled. Sleep, sleep, ha uh, happy sleep, well, or thee, thy mother weep. Sweet babe in thy face, holy image I can trace. Sweet babe, once like thee, thy maker lay and looked for me. Looked for me, for thee, for all, when he was an infant small. Thou his image ever see, heavenly face that smiles on thee. Smiles on thee, on me, and all, on all, who becomes an infant small. Infant smiles are his own smiles, heaven and earth, to peace with eyes. Thank you. Um, so, how complex is that poem? Yeah. So I thought of Sylvia Plath's Monkey Song. Okay. When I was reading it. Because mm -hmm. there's something about, um, I think, like, almost like uh, the. It reminds me also of, like, the cradle image, like, the baby Jesus mm -hmm. was born. Yeah. So it's, like, almost like, um, like, what, what you were saying about, like, the transient innocence. Mm -hmm. But then, like, something tragic is going to happen. Like very soon, mm -hmm. so yeah, it's like almost like this ominous, like foretelling of the f destiny of a baby that's in a cradle. Mm -hmm. I feel those are the vibes. Yeah. Okay. So, who is the speaker of this poem? Mother. How do you know? My head. Yeah. How do you know, Seth? The father. Um. Mother smiles. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the mother smiles. Uh, the speaker's talking about herself there. Do we all agree with that? Um, that is that uh, she's getting, um, she's taking a perspective of herself in the scene as well. Um, you also get the, the picture, which is of uh, the mother and the infant. Um, so the infant's asleep. Sweet dreams form a shade or my lovely infant's head. Um, why a shade? So protection from whatever it is. Right. Yeah, so sweet dreams, you should form a shade or my lovely infant's head. Um, sweet dreams of pleasant streams by happy, silent, moody beams. So um, the infant should dream of those things. Um, the, dream, the infant should dream of happiness. Um, yeah. And there are those different vowels Nice. That's great. So we get from sweet dreams of pleasant streams, all those E sounds. Yeah. Um, pleasant could possibly have been pronounced pleasant as well. Uh, the word please and the word pleasant are the same root. Um, what's pleasant is what pleases. It literally means pleasing. Um, yeah. Um, like from a Song, there's a line that says, I'm not more your mother than a cloud in the whatever. Yeah. And also, um, the pain that you wake to is not yours. Mm -hmm. Something like that. And I think here it's almost like the child doesn't know, it has no concept of a mother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like, it's just sleeping, it's this thing that's like inert and just there. And then, yeah, so I think it's interesting that it doesn't know that it has a mother who is wishing all these things. And mm -hmm. It's just a baby. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's right. That's beautiful. Let's keep, let's keep going with that, because I think that's, that's exactly right. Sweet sleep with soft down, weave thy brows an infant crown. What does that mean? That's, a, that's an odd pair of lines. Can you make any sense of it at all? It's okay if you can't. Maybe there's angel in the next line, so like infant crown, maybe a halo kind of thing? Okay. Um, so, sweet sleep angel mild hover o'er my happy child so in the in the second two lines um, sleep is an angel um, hovering um, over the child and again protecting him maybe like the shade in the first stanza um, but the first two lines are are harder weave thy brows an infant crown so what would it mean Weave thy brows a crown, that sounds a little weird now, but that actually wouldn't be um, opaque in uh, the 18th century. Um, it's, uh, the idea is that when you put a crown on, it comes down to your brows, and so you, would we you might weave your brows a crown of laurel if you were a poet, um, or a crown of oak or of bays, depending on what other things you want. Um, but what kind of crown, what would an infant crown mean? 
Yeah. <clears throat> Does it have anything to do with like the crown that Lady Macbeth says you mean, yeah, it, it, yes, it does. Um, so crown, it's like when Jack fell down and broke his crown. It's not that he's wearing a crown, it's the crown means head there, right? So when um, Lady Macbeth wants to be fell to the crown, it means to the top of her head. Um, so weave thy brows an infant crown. So babies have to make their heads still after they're born, right? They're like a little softer. Yeah. They're just born. So they still have to form the... Skull. Yeah, okay. Um, it probably also means something like if sleep goes into the child's skull, into the, into the baby's um, head, then um, the baby will be asleep, and sleep within the baby will be crowned with the baby's head. Um, so it's as though sleep merges with the baby, and the crown of sleep is the crown of the baby. Again, crown meaning skull or top of the head or something like that. I also just, because of where the poem ends, mm -hmm. it's like, you are just like the baby Jesus, mm -hmm. which for me wouldn't be that reassuring. It's like, you will be, yeah. you know, crucified. Yeah. You know, and so it's like, I, when I read it through again, you, know, you just hear a crown of thorns. Like, yeah. Nice. Well, that's yeah. what the Pieta is all about. Mm-hmm. The you mother holding the, the child. Holding, Jesus broken in her arms and dead, is, but she's holding him as, as if he were a baby in her arms. Yeah. And that, that motif is used, the most fabulous one, I think, is, is Michelangelo's. Yeah. Everyone knows the Pieta? Yeah, like Michelangelo's, like not Michelangelo's, sorry, the, the, American. Um, the, Virgin. the Virgin Mary's holding the dead Jesus, and it looks almost like the Virgin Mary holding a baby Jesus. Yeah, even though he's full-sized. Yeah. Which is, say, I'm taller than she is. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also, and then there's also, like, pictures, there's also paintings, like, Madonna with a long neck, where it's, like, a Virgin Mary holding a baby Jesus, but it looks like a Pieta. Mm -hmm. It goes yeah. both ways. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so sweet smiles in the night hover over my delight. So again, surround the child with smiles. Sweet smiles, mother's smiles. All the live long night beguiles. So sweet smiles, mother's smiles. All the live long night beguiles. Uh, what's the subject of the verb beguiles? Mother's smiles and sweet smiles. Yeah, so there's you don't have agreement of subject and verb then. Yeah. Right? Smiles should beguile, not beguiles. Um, but do we all agree, nevertheless, that the subject is that the smiles beguiles the live long night? Um, is live long night a direct object, or is that an adverbial phrase? An adverbial phrase. So all the night, the mother's smiles are beguiling. Yeah. The other possibility is all night the mother's smiles beguile the night. Um, beguile might be a transitive verb, in which case night would be its direct object. Um, okay. Sweet moans, dove-like sighs. So dove-like, again, if you see Christ is coming in later... Dove-like um, is, is going to be another religious word. Sweet moans, dove-like sighs. Chase not slumber from thy eyes. Sweet moans, 
sweeter smiles, all the dove-like moans beguiles. So there, it clearly is direct object, right? It's dove-like moans, smiles beguile dove-like moans. I think it's probably direct object then in the line. Yeah, if it's parallel. Um, you may not, it may be that you're not supposed to get, figure it out until you get to the next stanza, or it may be that he didn't, he didn't consider um, that it could be an adverbial phrase. Maybe, but I feel like they're actually almost saying the same thing. They're saying that all of the, throughout the whole night, the mother's smiles are beguiling the dove-like moons. Mm -hmm. But it's just saying that twice. That's what I, I mean, I think it's, yeah. I, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I see what you're saying. So, I mean, it's certainly the case that all the live long night um, means that all that the entire night is passing. Yeah. And um, whether it beguiles the whole night or it beguiles the whole night through, in a way, that's um, two ways of saying the same thing. Yeah. Um, and then the second time, um, if the dove-like moans are beguiled, um, they might beguile, be, be, be being beguiled like whatever is dark about nighttime. Um, so who's moaning? The baby. Okay. Um, why? It's waking up. Moan's kind of a strong word. It's not quite groan, but there is a sense there of unhappiness, do you think? Possible unhappiness? She doesn't want the moans to wake the baby up. Smiles are sweeter than moans, right? Sweet moans, sweeter smiles. All the dove-like moans beguiles. Might be there are three things, dove-like moans and sweet moans, dove-like sighs. There's a hint maybe of something not, I don't, I don't want to say imperfect, but the idea of sighing something um, about the world which isn't quite right. Um, discontentment yeah so even in sleep the possibility of some discontentment maybe the baby's hungry um, maybe it's just so tired that it needs more sleep and that's why it's moaning don't you know I, I don't want to overread it I don't want to say there's some radical subversion of whatever is happy about the poem going on here but notice moans notice sighs just notice it and notice that um, moans and sighs might wake the baby up, and that wouldn't be good. So the moans might beguile the baby so it doesn't wake up. Certainly the sweeter smiles might. Although the baby, whose smiles is it? Who's smiling? Okay because the baby can't see the smiles and the baby's asleep or it could be the baby um, who's moaning? the baby you sure? do moms moan? yes 
Look what she's about to say. Sleep, sleep, happy child. All creation slept and smiled. Sleep, sleep, happy sleep. While o'er thee, thy mother weep. Yeah. So she's weeping over the child. Why? I think you guys already said, but now it gets more obvious. Yeah. Um, because the child will die. It's something that mothers think about with newborns. That is, it's the most amazing thing in the world, and yet the child will die. So the mother knows something the child doesn't, and she knows something she doesn't want the child to know. Sweet babe, in thy face, holy image I can trace. Sweet babe, once like thee, thy maker lay and wept for me. So who's the maker? God. Yeah. How did he, um, how was he once like the babe? Yeah, when he was the baby Jesus. Um, and when he wept as a baby, he was weeping for the mother. So it's the opposite relationship. Now the mother is weeping for her baby as once the crying baby Jesus was weeping for humanity. So sweet babe, in thy face, holy image I can trace, sweet babe, once like thee, thy maker lay and wept for me. Wept for me, for thee, for all, when he was an infant small. Thou his image ever see, may you always see his image, heavenly face that smiles on thee. So now we're seeing the grand version of the smiles from um, line 15, sweet moon, sweeter smiles. Thou his image ever see, heavenly face that smiles on thee, smiles on thee, on me, on all who became an infant small. So God became an infant small. Infant smiles are his own smiles. Heaven and earth to peace beguiles. So when you're smiling, you become him while you're innocent, while you're an infant. And you beguile all of heaven and earth to peace, including me. So when I look on you, I think of the infant Jesus who is smiling on me and who reappears in you but also protects you. And may you always see him. So again, notice that there's um, a really complex play of projection that's going on here where she's thinking about what the infant is feeling, what she's feeling about the infant, um, how the infant represents Christ or represents Jesus, but also how different they are. That Jesus became an infant, whereas this infant is not Jesus who has become an infant, and he's not crying and smiling in order to save the world. Um, he's not weeping for others when he weeps. Um, and yet, um, the fact that he is what God became shows that he is what it's appropriate for God to become. Even though he's also not God, um, he's different. He's a human. He always needs God in a way that God did not.
So, again, that idea that the songs of innocence that that which you're looking at in Holy Thursday that you have to take several different perspectives at once on the figures in this poem. Um, I think it's pretty. It's a pretty amazing thing for Blake to do. Because when we get to the songs of experience, as you'll see, we don't have to take several different perspectives at once. It turns out that innocence is much more complicated than experience. In experience, we just know what it's like, which is bad um, on the whole. Um, but in innocence, it's, um, you have to feel, you have to know that it's bad without knowing that it's bad. You have to... Um, worry that things are not good while being reassured that things are good. And in this case, you have to treat an infant as the appropriate thing for God to be, but the infant that you're thinking about that way is someone who is not God, but who needs God's protection. And so, in a, so, so the way all those things are happening at once... Um, the way they're they're woven together is really interesting. Um, t- let's take a look at. Well, it's worth just while this is in your mind looking at the lamb, uh, which we briefly talked about before. Um, page oh, you guys probably have different page numbers, but at any rate, plate eight, um, or plate uh, plate uh, yeah, plate eight. The Lamb. Um, Max, have you read? Yeah. You've already read? Okay. Uh, no, no, no. I, 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 I thought you read the poem. Yeah, no, no. Okay, so can you read it aloud? Sure. Little Lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed. By the stream and o'er the mead. Gave thee clothing and delight. Soft as clothing, woolly bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the veils rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek, but he is mild. He became a little child. I, a child, and thou a lamb. We are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. So, yeah, he became a little child. Um, He is called by thy name for he calls himself a lamb. So, again, notice the difference on the one hand between the real child and the real lamb, and then the other child and the other lamb, who are um, God, who becomes a lamb and a child, rather than simply being a lamb and a child. And it's great. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. Um, They really are innocent. And um, rather than becoming innocent, they are innocent. And that's, a, that's another version of what's happening in the Cradle Song, I think. Okay, let's take a look at the poem. This is a paired um, poem. There's an experienced version of this also, but we'll just look at the innocent version today. Paired yeah. poems. I kind of feel like the lamb is paired with the tiger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in the tiger, does everyone know the tiger? Should we just look at it for a minute? Because in that, he says, did, like, he questioningly asks, did you make the lamb make the bee? And that's yes. kind of, like, basically questioning this whole entire poem where 
he's asserting without well, he's asserting over and over again that the lamb made him. Yes. Here, so read the tiger. Uh, right here. A tiger, tiger, burning right in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or e could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeper skies burnt thy fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist thy sinews of thy heart? And what thy heart began to beat? What dread hand, what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dead grass? Dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or e they dare f frame thy fearful symmetry. Great, thank you. Um, so I like that you pronounce it e. Yeah, because you told us that last semester. <laughs> yeah, so in the 18th century, it was optional how you pronounced um, I. You could pronounce it E-Y-E, or uh, you can pronounce it um, E or I. Um, and so you pronounce it to make it rhyme. Um, symmetry was definitely not symmetry. Um, so, so it's fine to pronounce it to make it rhyme. Um, in Shakespeare, when you get I rhyming with E, it usually would be E-E in Shakespeare's day. Um, I have a question about the yeah. Lamb of God. What's the, where, what's the origin of it, do you know? Yeah, it's the, that the sacrifice. No, I know, but, I, but where did it? It's New Testament. Oh, it, it is. Yeah. Because in many paintings... Yeah, no, Christ is the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God yeah. and the sacrifice. The sacrifice. Or, yeah. or the pelican, that's another one too, the pelican. Yeah, but that's... Yeah, feed, feeding her, yeah. Um, no, Lamb of God is New Testament. Um, I know the origin of it. But it's like, a, I think you told us last night that it's like a reference to in the Old Testament when the sacrifice of Isaac, Isaac mm -hmm. happens that's like supposedly... Um, a foretelling of what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, so that's what's called an anti-type. I mean, that's what's called a type, which is a, a prefiguration is another uh, word for type. And so the, sac so the father having to sacrifice his child, which is Abraham having to sacrifice Isaac, is a prefiguration of God sacrificing his son in the New Testament. Except he didn't. Um, except Abraham oh, didn't. Oh, yeah. Um, but instead, there Angel. was the... Yeah. Supposedly. Um, but it's also the um, more, slightly more directly, it's the Passover lamb. Um, so the lamb is sacrificed on Passover in, um, according to Old Testament rules. And Easter, um, Passover is the supper that the Last Supper was, was a Passover supper. And um, the lamb that then actually gets sacrificed is Jesus himself. Um, so it's a return of the, of the um, uh, sacrificial lamb now becomes um, the son of God. And that's why it's the So then it's actually God. Old Testament. <laughs> um, the Passover yeah, part is yeah, Old Testament. Yeah. And but the prefiguring, might. Yeah, but the... Um, the irony is that um, one reason that the children of Israel left Egypt is that they were against human sacrifice. And in Hebrew religious observance, the sacrifice of lambs replaced um, Egyptian um, human sacrifice from which it descended. Did, um, did the Egyptians, act, like the ancient Egyptians, like actually historically 
sacrificed. I believe so. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And the Jews did too, historically too, didn't they? Well, historically, but... Archaeologically? But yeah, yeah, they all did, archaeologically. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, they buried the servants. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for, for religious Judaism, a large part of it was that substitution of... Of the no lamb more, for the human. Yeah, no yeah. more human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. After, <laughs> after Passover, that is, after the Passover of the firstborns, of the Egyptians who were sacrificed in the ten plague, in the last of the ten plagues, um, so the idea then was now it's lambs, no more human sacrifice, and that is why Passover meals um, have one of the implements of the Passover meal is the shank bone of the lamb. Um, it's impo- and and the lamb is sacrificed in the temple, and there are all sorts of rules about it. Um, so then um, the irony is that it's a return to human sacrifice from the sacrifice of the lamb to the sacrifice of the son of God. Um, but that's supposed to be the last one. Yeah, um, but would you call it, with the ten plagues, would you call, I wouldn't call that a sacrifice. Would you call that a sacrifice? The no, angel the, of God came and he, and he killed all the firstborn, yeah, but it's explicit, the house was, was that they were Jews. It's explicitly said in Leviticus that that won't happen again, and now it'll be a lamb. No, no, but I'm using the the word I'm using is the, sacrifice. Yeah, the, now the sacrifice, sacrifice yes, in Leviticus. No, the plague isn't called a sacrifice, yeah, but I'm it's saying. referred back to oh, okay. as um, the lamb replacing yeah. um, the death of the firstborn. So you will sacrifice a lamb in memory of, but also in substitution for the death of the firstborn. Okay, anyhow. Um, so the tiger is the opposite of the lamb. Um, remember that the lion is supposed to lie down with the lamb, um, which another poem alludes to here. Um, let me just see if I can find it quickly. That's Isaiah, isn't it? Um, yes. Um, sorry. Um, yeah, it's in um, the poem Night. Um, just I'll read you the end of night. This is play 21. And there the lion's ruddy eyes shall flow with tears of gold and pitying the tender cries and walking around the fold saying, wrath by his meekness and by his health sickness is driven away from our immortal day. And now beside thee, bleeding lamb, I can lie down and sleep or think on him who bore thy name, graze after thee and weep. For washed in life's river, my bright mane forever shall shine like the gold as I guard o'er the fold. So that's what will happen in the future, says the lion. That's in the Song of Innocence called Night. But here's the tiger. Um, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. So now night is returning here. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? So you exist. Who could have created you? Where did you come from? And then the final question, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? So that goes, as you say, back to the little lamb who made thee. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also interesting that it's titled tiger, because the species of tiger isn't present in the country. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. It's in the, like the Asian continent. Yes. So it's almost like an alien thing that his people have no conception of. 
<laughs> well, Marco Polo wrote about tigers in his book. No, but like the like how they would have a conception of like a physical conception of like dogs. Yeah, no. Or like horses, for example. <laughs> they're, they're really familiar with horses. Yeah. But to see a tiger, they'd have to travel to a zoo or maybe yeah. go to India or wherever tigers are. Yeah. So, well, I was there were tigers in zoos tigers. In, in London. Um, I don't know if you saw one, but there were some. Were there public zoos that early? No. No, pri- private yeah. collections. Yeah. Exotica. This may yeah. come across as unrelated, but I think it is anyway. I read a New Yorker article this morning about how they found a weird asteroid Mm-hmm. In space, yeah, they so over did overplayed that. Yeah, <laughs> but I know I know there's story. It was like really like, but it, it now that I'm thinking about it, it's kind of like the same thing because they're like, who? It's like it's a weird asteroid because it doesn't move at the same speed as all the other like debris in space. Yeah, and it moves like its length and whatever. So mm-hmm. it's like, who made it? Like, does that know who made the? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they were saying like like a thing that we have a conception of, mm-hmm. like um, when you give a caveman an iPhone, he says it's a fancy rock. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say that it's an iPhone. And to us, like if it's an alien sending a message, it's a rock. Yeah. In space. Yeah. So it's like maybe what if it's not a tiger, <laughs> and it's something deeper and. Okay. He, he can't conceptualize. Okay. Um, created by God. He does He does paint it. Um, oh, that is a tiger. Yeah. <laughs> um, How could he have seen a tiger? Oh, they had. They displayed them. They weren't public zoos, but they were certainly public so, displays. So when you had a private collection, or one of the royalty or whoever it was yeah. who had them, then people and could actually... So he actually had seen them. Yeah, and there's, pl- there's plenty of art with tigers in it that he But, but also in seen. art... They often showed all of these religious, they, say the Northern Renaissance, for example, they'd never been to, to Israel or to Palestine. They didn't know what it was like there. And so they did, when you see the architecture and you see the people and you see everything, all the nativities, I mean, all of the religious scenes, they're, they're, they're what they knew, which had nothing at all to do with what they didn't know of how things actually would have been in the Middle East. Yeah, exactly. Jesus is one of the pictures. And that's why it's no. That's why it's no. Right. <laughs> in Jerusalem. That's right. Yeah, but yeah. like uh, I think the line that you're burning in a forest, like of the night, like mm-hmm. if it's a zoo, it's like a domesticated like setting. Yeah, yeah. Bars and everything. Yeah. But here it seems like the tigers out in the wild. Mm-hmm. So there's just this whole foreign element. Oh yeah, Ex- exotic and, yeah. and frightening and different. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right about that. Um, but then the the shocking thing is that um, that God, who made the lamb and who became a lamb, also made the tiger. And then the final question is: Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. Do people know what the difference between the first and the last stanza is? It's a one word difference. Dare. Dare. Now, so. Um, um, could turns to dare. What an immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry that was it was able to do it, but then what immortal hand or eye dared frame thy fearful symmetry um, because the tiger is so scary and frightening. Um, so that 
comparison of the tiger to the lamb um, is, did he who made the lamb make thee um, remembers the lamb, and now you have to go for the power of God than not only the sweetness of God when you get to the songs of experience. Um, let's go. Yeah. I want to. Harold Bloom, as I'm sure you know, has a wonderful reading of this question. Mm-hmm. Um, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Um, and when you pair that with the lamb poem, he says there's two possible answers to each of these questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and for both of them, it's either God or man. And so if you ask of the right. lamb, like little lamb who clothed thee, who fed thee, or not clothed thee, but who fed thee, who guided thee. Gave thee clothing of delight, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you say man, all of a sudden that's really menacing because now the lamb's just being... Going to be slaughtered. Slaughtered and butchered and eaten. Um, and if you say God, all of a sudden we get that same story, but we call it sacrifice and you see it as being really redemptive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then likewise with the tiger, if you're like, well, God made it. And so yeah. it's like, oh, oh no, God made evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but oh, if man. you say man made it, all of a sudden it's this sense that like we contain religions within us, that we project the supernatural into the universe, and it's this empowering, humanistic conception. Yeah. Um, so I just love that reading. The language of the furnace and the animal, only humans do that. Right. You can't imagine God. Yeah, like creative. Yeah. And that's an anticipation of Los, I think, right? Yes. Uh, like, Tell people who Los is. Well, he's the uh, creative figure in place, cosmology, and he has an anvil, I believe. Yeah, yeah. He's he is a creator who is not all powerful. Um, although he starts out um, imagining himself as all powerful, and um, um, things things go wrong with creation, and the world of experience, or what we're now calling the world of experience, comes into it. Um, but one of the poems we'll look at is the Song of Los. Um, yeah. When I first read The Lamb and the Tiger, I felt like the tiger was like the atheist counterpart to the lamb. Mm-hmm. And when he's asking, did who he who made the lamb make the, I feel like it's a rhetorical question. It's like, no, like you're too great to have been made by uh-huh. God. By the person oh, who made the lamb. The yeah. person who made the lamb. That, oh, if you read The Lamb, like... There's no, like, there's not, like, with the tiger, you have so much description of the symmetry and everything, and you don't have that same kind of description with the lamb, and it's almost like, well, the lamb, he just keeps on saying that, he just keeps on asserting that God created you, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but with the tiger, he's almost proving how God couldn't have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or if the answer is yes, it makes you wonder about the lamb. That is, um, the lamb seems to be, um, if you say, little lamb, who made thee? Um he became a little child, thou a lamb and I I a child, both are called by his name. The answer would be, you know that God is good because he created the lamb. And that's that's the main thing to know about God, is that the kind of thing he creates is lambs and children. Um, And then what you find out in the Song of Experience is that, well, no... um, he may have created the lamb, but he created the tiger. And if you think of God as the lamb maker, um, you are probably fooled into what he's capable of. And then if you take the word dare um, and think about um, who would dare to do it, um, that feels like God doesn't have to dare to do anything. 
um, because there's no one who's going to, um, God is in no danger. Um, so whoever dares create the tiger, um, whoever dares frame its fearful symmetry, um, has to be someone who is um, doing something scary to himself by doing it, which sounds human. Um, that is, that, and you should also ask yourself, I mean, I really want us to look at the chimney sweeper, but you should ask yourself um, what, um, um, what the danger, I'm sorry, you should ask yourself um, what does it mean to frame asymmetry? Um, frame, in its strongest use of the word frame, um, it's the use that Mary Shelley uses in Frankenstein as well. It means to um, put together um, a contraption, to put together an engine, to put together a mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, or even just to create, um, which I think is what it means etymologically. Um, but it also means something like take what's possible and make it symmetrical. Um, and in the tiger's case, that would be a really fearful thing to bring into symmetry. Um, so could frame thy fearful symmetry turns into dare frame thy fearful symmetry. Um, could frame, that sounds like God, dare frame sounds like maybe God, but a God who turns out not to be all powerful because maybe the tiger is still more powerful than God himself. You just mentioned Mary Shelley. It's actually almost like, like Victor Frankenstein making something that's more powerful. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that is, I'm, I'm pretty sure she didn't know the Songs of Experience, um, but it would be the same sort of thing. That is, um, Victor Frankenstein dared to create the, create the creature, um, and then he wished he hadn't. Um, he can't believe his own daring yeah, in doing it. Would you have known yeah. the golem? How old is the golem story? Um, I don't know if she would have known it, but it's old. Yeah. Oh, you didn't say I mean, the only reason God is untouchable is because it's a written thing. Mm -hmm. But, like, in practicality, it doesn't seem that way. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, God created this thing that can go against him. Mm -hmm. That this thing that is, like, really mobile, like, he can move around hell, like, flying. Yeah, and yeah, good, good. So, yeah, it's just like, why would you create something? <laughs> Why would you oh, even do that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice. And it's also like, okay, I'm sorry, but also the tiger can kill a lamb also. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's like he's created something that has the power to destroy yeah. the thing with another thing which he created. Yeah. And it's worth noticing that everything that you have to think about the creator, you know, I'm twisting the sinews and so on. Um, think of the power that you need to create the tiger, which is a reflection of the power of the tiger. Um, that is, whatever, whatever you need, whatever, whatever capacities and, and potencies you need to create the tiger, you need it because the tiger has so much power and is so potent. Um, so um, all those things combine to make the tiger really scary. Okay, look at the innocent version of the chimney sweeper. This is plate 12. Um, Olivia, have you read? Um, not today. Oh, you did read last week, though, right? 
Um, Tafar, have you read yet? No. Okay, so <clears throat> why don't you read The Chimney Sweeper? Um, unless, you, unless you have a desire to read. Okay. <laughs> Not today. Do they come in any book Yeah, it's play 12. When my mother died, I was very young, and my father sold me while yet my tongue could scarcely cry, weep, weep, weep. So your chimneys I sweep, and in suit I sleep. There is little Tom Duff, who cried when his head that curled like a man's back was shaved. So I said, Hush, Tom, never mind it, for when your head's bare, you know that the suit cannot spoil your white hair. And so he was quiet, and that very night, as Tom was sleeping, he had such a sight that thousands of sweepers, Dick, Joe, Ned, and Jack, were all of them locked up in coffins of black. And by came an angel, who had a bright key, and he opened the coffins and set them all free. Then down the plain, leaping, laughing, they run, and wash in a river, and shine in the sun. Then naked and white, all their bags left behind, they rise upon clouds and sport in the wind. And the angel told Tom, if he be a good boy, he'd have God for his father and never want joy. And so Tom awoke and we rose in the dark, and got with our bags and our brushes to work. Though the morning was cold, Tom was happy and warm. So if warm. Yeah. So if all do their duty, they need not fear harm. And and God with our bags and our brushes to work. Yeah. 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 Think of it as a slight Cockney accent, a London accent of a certain period. Um, okay, what makes that a song of innocence, or what makes it a challenge to think of it as a song of innocence? <laughs> it's like a little. I mean, it's a little dark, right? He's. This kid is crying because he, his, his hair was shaved. No, no, don't, don't worry about it. Now that you don't have any, it can't get so deep. So you know, so so it's all good. Yeah, it's fine. And then the same thing later when he's, um, like, he thinks that he doesn't have a, he doesn't have a father, right? Someone's like, no, don't worry about it. God will be your father and then you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So this kid just kind of has to accept that, you know, he's, it's, yeah. It's a so, do people know why kids were chimney sweeps? Because they could fit. Yeah. So, little kids had to clean out um, chimneys. Uh, the way they're done now is with big vacuum cleaners and electric motors and lots of suction. Um, but back then, they were done by little kids um, clambering up and down chimneys with brushes and being covered with carcinogenic soot. Um, and they knew it was carcinogenic. That is, they knew um, that um, that kids who were chimney sweeps got um, hideous diseases and didn't live so long. Um, but you needed chimney sweeps, or the houses would um, go on fire. So um, that's what poor children did. Um, so this is in the city of London. That's um, a thing to notice about it is that it's one of several poems which you can locate in London. Obviously not the lamb, um, maybe the tiger, depending, but certainly not the lamb, certainly 
Infant Joy We Don't Know, um, the opening poem <coughs> of the Songs of Innocence, Piping Down the Valley's Wild, Piping Songs of Pleasant Glee, There I, there I Saw a Little Child and He Laughing Said to Me, etc. Um, all of those could be out in the country, um, the nurse's song could, but the chimney sweep is really urban. Um, and then look at the first line. When my mother died, I was very young. How would you, is that the natural way of putting it? I was very young when my mom died. Yeah. Yeah, I was very young when my mother died is what you would, um, would be a more natural way of saying something. But when my mother died, I was very young. Um... Or maybe it would be, when I was very young, my mother died. I think that's what we're getting from it. When I was very young, my mother died. Yeah, um, isn't that what it is? No, when my mother died, I was very young. No, but isn't that what I said, when I did? No, you said I was very young when my mother died. Wait, and what are you saying? When I was very young, my mother died. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, got it. I think another really, so those are two, and then... My mother died when I was very young, I think, is another one. There's a lot of ways to say this that are not this phrase that would be more instinctive. Yeah, so what's he, what's he doing by saying it this way? Putting the emphasis on her and that he could be dying very young, too. Yeah. I mean, precur a precursor of, his, of yeah. his own death. Yeah. But it's, um, how about... Um, when, um, I'm just trying to think of a completely innocuous or innocent version of this. Um, when the train came, I was still in the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, it normalizes it, right? Yeah. Like it, it makes it yeah, entirely, it makes it sound as if this kid is entirely this is not a shock to him. Yeah. The way it works. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's totally different from a cradle song. What he's basically saying is, mother's dying, that's a subordinate clause. Um, when my mother died, oh, yeah, um, in my case, I was very young. Um, so, the, so that mother should die, it happens, he knows that it happens at one point or another. And it would be different if, when I was very young, my mother died. You know, a terrible thing happened to me when I was very young. My mother died. Or... Um, <coughs> Even um, um, my mother died when I was very young, um, which would be um, still this terrible thing happened. But it's just, it's par for the course. And for him, it happened when he was very young. So when my mother died, I was very young. Um, so he expects it to happen. And my father sold me. While yet my tongue, so what's the real problem here? That his father sold him, or is it the while? It's when he was that yeah, why would he sell me when I was that li sell me when I was that little? He should have waited till I was you know ten before he sold me. Those are the possibilities. That's the possibility space for the chimney sweep. Is um, maybe if I've been luckier. Um, uh, when my mother died, I would have been 15, and maybe if I'd been luckier, my father wouldn't have sold me while I was, before I could even pronounce the word sweep. 
What fucked up? Is that were, were, were those literary critical terms you were using here? Good. Yeah, it's fucked up. Yeah. Well, but he knows that no matter, it's out of question whether his father is going to sell him or not. It's just a question of when. Exactly. And it's and there's no question whether his mother's going to die or not. It's just a question of how old he is. So when my mother died, I was very young, and my father sold me while yet my tongue could scarcely cry, weep, 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 weep. Mm. So um, the footnote will tell you, but if you don't look at the footnote or if you're just looking at it, it's a kind of childish lisp for sweep. That is, he's going down the streets offering his services. And what he's trying to say is, sweep, sweep, sweep. If you've, um, if you've seen Oliver Twist, you know that, um, they, that people um, go out early in the morning and cry their wares. So he's crying his wares as a chimney sweep. So he's going down the street saying, weep, 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 weep. And it's all very cute because he can't pronounce the S. He's lisping. Um, but it's not cute because this is a terrible thing. And here's that word weep again that we saw in the Cradle Song. So he's crying, weep, 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 weep. And of course, we reading the poem know that what's important about this is that the word is weep um, within sweep, that the meaning of the word weep really matters here. So it should be a kind of chastisement of everyone, that they should be listening to this child saying weep all of you. You should be weeping. Um, but he's not intending to say it that way. But we should be understanding that it is um, something that they should be feeling. Um, that they should be weeping. But I could scarcely cry, weep, 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 weep. So your chimneys I sweep and in soot I sleep. Um, so can, what can he cry now? Can he say the word sweep? Yes. So he's been doing it for a while. And we get that from when my mother died. So your chimneys I sweep and in soot I sleep. And then, but he doesn't sleep alone because there's little Tom Dacre who cried when his head that curled like a lamb's back was shaved. So Tom Dacre, what are their relative ages? Yeah, it seems like Tom is younger. He's experienced, and he's taking little Tom under his wing. So there's little Tom Dacre who cried when his head curled like a lamb's back was shaved. So there's another lamb, but his head is shaved. So I said, hush, Tom. He gives him comfort. A little bit like the mother now in the cradle song. Hush, Tom, never mind it. For when your head's bare, you know that the soot cannot spoil your white hair. White there means blonde. Um, so it's a good thing. You have no hair, so the soot can't spoil it. Um, we're both sleeping in soot, um, but now your hair is protected by being shaved. And so he was quiet. So it worked. Why did it work? Did he believe the logic? Yeah. I think it's the it's part of the poem's like main thing to like juxtapose the childhood innocence with like the cruel realities of the world. Mm -hmm. And they just seem so much more dark 
when they're put beside children. Yeah. So it's like we can't believe that they have to go through this. Mm-hmm. So it's also like they go through this because of this oblivion of like innocence. Yeah. Almost. Right. So they can tell good and bad of heart. Everything mm-hmm. is all right. Mm-hmm. And also the um, well, it makes me think of um, like the first pages of Aranda she voice the god of small things because mm-hmm. she does it too like juxtaposing mm-hmm. children with right. horrible tragic things right 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 and it's like when they were still young when the world was when there was the world was full of beginnings and no mm-hmm. ends mm-hmm. so it's like there's no limit so it's like even if they are in it's like death doesn't exist to them right even even, even if they're in a chimney that's carcinogenic it's not dangerous. Right. Or not that it's not dangerous, but that they don't... Like, I feel like a lot of, a lot of the songs kind of sense. There's kind of... They accept things as the way that they are and don't bother to question that it could be any other way. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they don't recognize that this situation is awful. Yeah. They're just like, well, it's awful and it has to be that way, so why bother worrying about it? Or it's as good as it could be because yeah. everyone wants things to be as good as they can be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I sort of think of, like, children drinking or like Tide Pods or whatever. Like they don't know yeah. that like it's a keep keep it away from children because it's harmful. Mm-hmm. Like they don't know. They can tell apart. Like of course they seem older. Yeah. And like they can like be very eloquent about their experiences, but I think it's still the same sense of keep it away from children because they can tell if it's good or bad. Yeah. 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 Yeah, sort of in a similar vein. Um, Like, it's, in this case, I think, specifically with the lines, hush time, never mind, for for when your head's bare, you know, the second that's spoiler, your white hair. My thinking is that it's less the actual message that he's saying, like, your hair can't be spoiled, it's more the the tone that he's, that Tommy needs, so it's the comforting. Yes, good. That's what he needs, not the, you know, it's not the hair that matters, it's the having someone there to take care of him that he's really missing. Yeah, so, so what the adults did was they shaved his head, and um, he was shocked by that. Um, but <coughs> then the speaker of the poem um, gave him comfort, and, and so he was quiet. And that's why we get the, and so. And so he was quiet, and that very night, as Tom was sleeping, he had such a sight, so he has a dream. All of this is a result of having his head shaved and being comforted by the speaker. And here's the dream. The thousands of sweepers, Dick, Joe, Ned, and Jack, were all of them locked up in coffins of black. So that's kind of a grim dream. What's he actually dreaming of? Coffins of black? What is that in reality? Inside. It's the chimneys themselves. So the chimneys here in his dream, he understands them to be coffins or coffin-like or that the coffins are very close to chimneys. But then, and by came an angel who had a bright key. So remember um, the angels keeping guard. And by came an angel who had a bright key and he opened the coffins and set them all free. So it's a great dream. Then down a green plain, no longer in London, leaping, laughing, they run and wash in a river and shine in the sun. So that's great. Then naked and white, all their bags left behind, 
they rise upon clouds and sport in the wind. And the angel told Tom if he'd be a good boy, he'd have God for his father and never want joy. <laughs> so it's all seeming really good except for one slight if he'd be a good boy. So suddenly there's a little bit of a um, uh, reward and punishment psychology going on here. Here's what you can have. This will be your reward if you're a good boy. And what happens if you're not a good boy? Die in the black coffin. Yeah, you stay in the black coffin. And so, and here's another and so, and so Tom awoke. And we rose in the dark and got with our bags and our brushes to work. Though the morning was cold, Tom was happy and warm. So if all do their duty, they need not fear harm. So if all do their duty, they need not fear harm. So what's their duty? To chimney sweep. To be chimney sweeps. And if they do that, their reward is they get a promise in a dream. Um, it's not that the promise is kept. It's that an angel will say, if you continue to be good, you'll get this promise. Okay, so they'd have God for their father. He'd have God for his father. What does this poem say fathers do? Sell you. So you could read it one of two ways, but it seems, and this is part of the complexity of this, but it seems the... Um, the, the, the sweet way, the, the, the happy ending way is you lost a father, but now you have a better father, namely God himself. Um, and that's, what, that's sort of what Claudius is offering Hamlet in Hamlet. He says, um, yes, your father died, but we beg you, throw to earth this unprevailing woe and think of us as of a father. Um, but exactly in the same way as in Hamlet, um, it means that if, if your only idea of a father is that he's someone who sells you, then if that's what father means and God becomes your father, then it, things are completely hopeless. Well, well, the difference is God your father sacrifices you. Right. Regular father just sells you. He money. just sells you, but God sacrifices you. <laughs> the other thing is, the other reason it's hopeless is that the whole point of the heartbreaking is meaningless because... The promise, you have to work in a chimney, and the reward is that you don't have to work in a chimney anymore. Right, yeah. Um, but in this case, the reward is you um, work in a chimney, and the reward is that if you do your duty, you don't have to worry about the fact that this is such a terrible job. If you work in a chimney happily, then you won't be unhappy about it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's very much um, a song of uh, very great innocence. Um, because he has 